Welcome back, my artist people. This episode, I'm talking with Shlomo Zippel, a developer turned light artist based out of the Bay Area. We've kind of been in each other's orbits for years, but we've never actually met in person. Recently, I started dating a friend of his, and that prompted me to get in touch with him. He was one of the original contributors to the software and the hardware driving some of Symmetry Lab's more iconic installations, and he's kind of been in the scene for the past 10 years. I figured we'd have a lot to talk about. Recently, Shlomo's been working on launching an experiential art space here in San Francisco. Kind of in the vein of Meow Wolf and Team Labs, but with a decidedly light art, avatar-esque feel to it. He's putting a unique spin on the concept of immersive art installations and collaborating with some really amazing local light artists. Simultaneously, he's developing an LED controller that he wants to take to market soon after his art space launches. It's really software that he's developing to run on a variety of microcontroller platforms. It incorporates a really capable pattern engine, and it works in a fundamentally distributed manner. Like, you deploy lots of these things into an installation, and they work like some kind of LED hive mind. Uh, the swarm of controllers collectively spread the processing power out across the entire fleet of devices, and that means there's no need for a massive and expensive server sitting at the center of the installation. It's a really cool concept, and I love geeking out with him on how this type of system would change the way artists think about their installations. It's a great conversation, yet another amazing artist engineer doing really crazy things with technology. I think you're going to dig it. I, I hope we don't do this and my, <laughs> one of our audio just tracks is just non-present. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever. I mean, it's like I've been trying to get, get, a, get a chance to, to have a conversation with you for a while. Yeah. You know, it's like so many of my friends know like I've, I've heard your name for literally like 10 years like randy randy knows you pretty well right yeah. Yeah, yeah ben pollock knows you pretty well yeah felicia knows you really well yeah yeah and then i'm like oh yeah you're that you're that symmetry dude and yeah i never you know i never actually worked at symmetry but really? I, I worked with them yeah i thought you were like there i thought you were like uh i thought you were like drank the kool-aid you're like no. doing the I symmetry never, thing. I never worked in symmetry. I, you know, I made the hardware and the firmware for Tree of Tenere, and they ended up taking that design and using it in some of their projects after Tree of Tenere. Uh, but I never worked at symmetry. Yeah, how'd you feel about that? About which part? Well, them them using. Was it cool that they used your design? Uh, you know, it could have been better. Yeah. But, it's funny it's too bad man that's like the the vibe that i get from talking to a lot of people who have worked with symmetry in the past and it's like mainly it was uh what's his name you know that was like the main the main issue and it's a shame because like you know as like another person who's running like a like it's hard to 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 make this kind of business do you know what I mean? It's not an easy thing to do. And there's only a handful of people who are like actually doing it. And I like wanted to be his friend. I wanted to like, you know, like I wanted to be like, yeah, you know, we share this experience and like you're fucking trying to make it and I'm trying to make it. We're just doing the thing. And like, and it never really worked, you know, and then, uh, yeah. And then like history happened and blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah, you know, it was like one of those things where it's like, man, I wish he could have been cooler because, like, I, w I wanted to be friends with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, there there are uh, quite a few burned bridges there, and, and it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And yeah, say lovey. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, man. So, how did you end up there, or how did you end up 
working with them? Because I know you were working with Felicia, right? And you like had like a yeah. come to Jesus and you're like, fuck this. And then you were like, I'm doing my own thing. And and yeah, when know, she I've told been... me that part of your story, it like fit into the the part that I knew about where you were like, yeah. you know, like this kind of like, like tech genius working with, with the symmetry guys. Yeah. I was like, how did you end up there? Yeah. So, I mean, so I worked with Felicia 10 years ago at Funders Club and that was a, an online VC firm. And um, like, honestly, I'm not super passionate about finance. That's not my jam, but uh, the, the the Funders Club founders, Boris and Alex, uh, I was impressed by them and they were both second timers. And I knew that I was going to be doing startups um, and I wanted to get the chance to work with people that kind of know what they're doing and have done it before. And yeah. uh, when they approached me, um, they were talking about a co-founder role and I flat out told them that I am not passionate about finance and I'm happy to be you know, build up an engineering team and be the first employee, but uh, I'm not interested in, in doing it long term. Um, and I said, two years, that's what and two years to the day, I emailed the founders, I'm like, hey, it's been two years, I built out the team, I built out the first product. Uh, it's time for me to move on to my next chapter. And that's basically what I've been doing ever since um, a mixture of starting my own things, or joining um, kind of efforts that are in their very beginning. Uh, I very much enjoy that phase of a company when it's kind of the zero to one single digit number of people. Um, I yeah. love that energy. I think that once a company grows beyond that, when it hits 20 or 30 people, it, it just becomes much less fun for me. Um, and this is yeah. true, even if it's my own company. Um, I you know walked out of Whisper a few months ago, which was a hearing aid company, my, my latest uh, chapter before this current one um, and whisper is now 50 or 60 employees but I, i'm not as interested in being uh, in an organization that that's big that's not where now, i thrive. did you start whisper uh i did not start whisper dwight my co-founder started it um i joined him i was the uh um, i guess i joined him when he was in the early prototyping stage uh it was a great idea it still is a great idea and um, I was approached over the years by many founders, and uh, a lot of them can talk the talk, but not all of them can walk the walk. And Dwight yeah. was talking and walking, and he was um, finding the right people and making the right prototypes and finding the right advisors. And um, I decided, I decided to join him, despite having my own very early stage LED controller company. That's what I was doing five years ago. Um, I decided to put that on the back burner, joined him for three years, brought the first version of the product to market, grew the company to uh, over 50 employees, and then stepped back. I'm not as interested in, in scaling a large tech company and went back to my LED stuff, which yeah, I guess is yeah. one of the reasons we're talking now. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Well, your symmetry work was before Whisper, right? Symmetry and uh, actually the Tenere project was just as Whisper was starting. So I started working with Dwight in April of 2017. And that's also when Alex approached me to work on Tenere. And I decided, um, I'm not sure if it was wise or not, but I decided to do both projects at the same time. 
so I spent my weekends working on Tenere, and I spent my weekdays and my weekends working on Whisper. Yeah. Um, ended up going to Playa just for a few days before the burn started to help set up the tree, and then immediately headed back in the middle of the week to do a, a VC pitch the next day. That was pretty I mean, honestly, jarring. Man, but... Once it hits Wednesday at, on Playa, it's like, meh. <laughs> That's the real I magic. Is, I yeah, left on Wednesday, and then Thursday morning, I was uh, I was pitching, uh, raising a seed round together with Dwight. So yeah, yeah both I of those kind of happen at the same time. Yeah, that's it's interesting. I'm kind of in that same boat where I'm like trying to trying to double task it, and it's it's tricky, you know. Like digital ambience is is cruising, and mm-hmm. you know we started this other thing that I'm working on in the beginning of the pandemic mm-hmm. so it was like digital ambience was kind of freezing up a little bit and i was like all right well I'll, i was kind of getting bored anyway i'll just do this other thing and that's rolling now and now digital ambience is picking back up and i'm in this position where i'm trying to like offload responsibility uh as fast as possible with with da yep. um find project managers and find find other engineers and, and installers and techs uh people to sell that's another huge thing is like selling you know just the act of selling like a new media art installation that it's a never-ending job oh yeah so and that that's what i that's like was my main thing really it was like selling and then programming um so trying to find ways to do you do you actually know the the building 180 uh women um I get their emails. I think I bet that's uh, maybe from Paint the Void, right? That that's uh, kind of related to them. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm I'm working with them, and I'm trying yeah. to essentially allow them to do the sales for DA, oh, and cool. it's actually working out pretty well. I'm yeah. just like, here's our portfolio. We'll take less of a cut, but I don't have to do any selling. Go yeah, forth. Totally. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, you know, I when I started Whisper, I could not continue. My my uh, LED business at the time was not at a point where I could where I could hand it off. So it was completely parked for three years and then defrosted um, as pandemic started, uh, yeah. or actually mid pandemic, which is kind of when I uh, I left Whisper as we launched our first product, and then um, picked up where I left off. Right. Yeah. Well, that's and cool. To, I mean, to get back to your not... question about um, symmetry and Tenere, um, I was introduced to Alex, uh, I guess, shortly after he he fell through the roof. I don't know if you remember that. Um, the first time that. I met him and talked about Tenere, he was uh, sitting in a hospital bed, and wow. um, I came I came to the hospital and had a chat with him, and and he you know he casually asked me, well, if you were um, if you were going to to drive over a hundred thousand LEDs on this tree, how would you do it? And I kind of just rattled off kind of how I would design it and how I was thinking about it. And he said, "Well, great. Why don't you do it?" And my immediate <laughs> response was, "No, I can't. I'm starting a company now." Uh, but I let myself be persuaded into doing it, and um, yeah, I ended up doing it, and uh, I'm very glad I did. It was a great project to be part of. Yeah, man, that, that's one of the most, that's one of the more iconic pieces of our time, you know, like as far as light art goes, that that's, that's part of the, you know, that's part of the current landscape that, that makes up like what's possible. And that's really cool. You know, it's, um, yeah, absolutely. I actually, I just had a conversation on 
Tuesday with uh, with Luke Taylor from Sim- uh, excuse me from uh, Advitech, mm-hmm. uh, Advitech Lighting. Yeah, uh, the they do Yeah, we're we're like a longtime user of Pixlights. Uh, I love their hardware. It's fucking bulletproof, and their their firmware is kind of like a Swiss Army knife for for pixels, mm-hmm. and it, it just really fits. It fills a, a, a void for us very nicely. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I've known those guys forever, so I wanted to like get his. It was a super nerdy conversation, dude. Oh my god, we started like going into like like yeah. bit banging and just you know like the the fucking nitty gritty. Yeah, I love that stuff. That's that's my bread and butter right now. So totally. Yeah. So you're you're going back to that now, and you're picking it up, and you're you're doing an LED controller. Yeah, you know, I I um, honestly I don't really want to make LED controllers, but I feel like there's in my mind. Um, I've been doing LED art for over a decade and uh, different flavors of it, whether it's wearable or large scale installs or smaller scale, like medium wall hanging stuff. And, um, and I feel like there are certain use cases that are just not covered by the existing controllers out there. I think tell that, me about that. Um, so the, tell me about yeah, the, the, the use two use cases that, that, that I was frustrated by were one of them was just the, kind of the throwaway, super cheap wearable controller, which I just don't think exists today. It needs to be right. as cheap as an Arduino and plug and play. And it has a USB on one side and a single channel output on the other side, and it just works. Um, so that that's kind of one thing that I'm working on. Now, would second- that be... So in order, in order to have that be a, like a viable thing it would have to record and playback shows or patterns uh, are you working on like a pattern engine as well so i am working on a pattern engine i'm going to show you the board because i have them here um, i uh all of my boards are named after plants of families of plants really? uh, so this this wearable controller um i'm aiming for like a ten dollar controller uh ten dollars or less it's called moss i can't seem to find any now Usually, a lot like scattered all over my desk. Um, and uh, yes, there is a pattern engine. Uh, that's this the uh, another thing that frustrates me about existing controllers is that they are mostly kind of dumb pixel repeaters. Yeah, there's a central yeah. server that sends out pixels, and the controllers will multiplex them out. And they're very smart yeah. about it, and they support all the pixel types and all the network interfaces, and they'll take it over. Uh, Ethernet or DMX or E13 and you know, all all the different protocols. And yeah. I don't want to send pixel data over the network. I want to send high level configuration and events and triggers and a very small amount of traffic, and then let the controllers themselves uh, kind of interpret that and render that and uh, own the the rendering code themselves, and not so have that's their a very- frame rate depend on the network, basically. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really cool paradigm, and that's very similar to what uh, Mark and Brian were doing with uh, Luminous. I can't remember what the hell they're calling their thing now. Yeah, but yeah. That that project is, um, and Brian's, you know, his like paradigm is very similar to that. But yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it's. I, I think there is a niche for what you're describing that doesn't really exist, and. Brian's thing's not here yet. <laughs> like I've been yeah. bugging him for the past like five years. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I have been talking to to Brian and Mark as well. And and the reason I'm doing this is that theirs doesn't exist in the way that I could use it. 
Yeah, um, and, <laughs> and if it did exist, I would not have to do what I'm doing now. Um, right. And I'm very excited about making this thing and open sourcing it. And, um, and the way I, you know, the trends that I've seen and I have probably two decades of experience now in uh, kind of security and web development and financial tech and a lot of other industries and a lot of the trends that happen there. Um, it's, it's very obvious to me that they have to happen in our small niche art world as well. And in the um, infrastructure world, we kind of went from having everyone had their own on-premise infrastructure to having virtual infrastructure, infrastructure as a service. And now we have kind of infrastructure as config configuration as infrastructure. You have some JSON file or some mini file, and it describes something that unfolds into containers and virtual machines. And, um, right. and you don't have to host all those yourself. And that's how I'm thinking about this pattern engine as well. I want the pattern to be configuration, not code. Right. And that is uh, the next pet peeve that I have with the existing controllers. And some of them are, are really amazing, like the Pixel Blaze, which Ben made, and um, Soulmate that Elliot made, and and even the, um, what was it called? The uh, Julian's, um, I can't remember what it's called. The Flow, I can't remember what it's called. Let's go um, into those for a second because yeah. I'm barely familiar with those. I think that a lot of people would be interested to hear more about those. Like, explain totally. the. Yeah. Like, what, uh, what are the. the... Uh, I kind of, I want to, I just want to give him credit. Uh, so I'm going to look up the name of his product, but. Um, there's so it'll, many it'll, of them. It'll, it'll come to me. There's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of controllers yeah. out there. I agree. And, 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 some and of kind of making niche. another controller is. Is almost ridiculous. Like we don't definitely don't need another controller. Well, I think but, a well um, a well made controller is is different. A well made and easy to use, i.e., accessible controller. Exactly. You know. Yeah, I think that the 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 problems that I have with existing controllers, as mentioned, they're kind of dumb pixel repeaters, and they depend on some central server with I don't know LX or Resolume or all those programs that are pushing up pixels. Yeah. Um, the second problem I have is that the ones that, that uh, you know, the Pixel Blaze and all these that I just mentioned, they are catering to coders. I right. think Pixel Blaze did an amazing job of reducing the barrier to entry where it's all Wi-Fi based and you put it in your art and you program it from your laptop and it synchronizes over the air and you're writing your patterns in JavaScript. You're not even, you don't have to deal with C, uh, but you still have to be a programmer and you still open up the pattern and you're staring at 20 lines of math. And I have been writing LED patterns for a decade now. And it's the last thing that I want to do when I'm trying to figure out a pattern. Kind of so as a designer, math mindset. Yeah. as a designer, that's why I like, I, that's why I like programs. Like some of the programs out there, dude, are amazingly complex and full featured pattern engines. And I don't think you could get that on a piece of firmware. Like, you know, you look at Smode, you look at Smode, it's, it's a 3D engine. It's it's truly volumetric yeah. and yep. you can do some really advanced things with it. And that's why, yeah, I just like that paradigm. Let me take you upstairs real quick. Um, I was going to say, we're going on a trip. We're going on a trip. So I have been working on this program that gives you the full engine on, a, on an embedded platform. I don't know if you can see this. I have a oh, glowy, on the... magical, yeah, glowy yeah. forest here. 
right? Um, these sculptures you know are Sean made Stevens? by Yeah, Sean. You, that looks like that looks like the the stuff that Sean Stevens yeah, makes. Kind of. This is all uh, resin sculptures by Eric Dunn. Uh huh. Um, oh, and yeah, you've definitely seen his work, and he's he's posted his stuff. And um, the these are all driven by controllers that I'm working on. Um, and the pattern engine that I'm working on. And I wonder if I can share a screen with you to, just to show you what the editing interface will look like. But no coding was required to make those patterns. Oh, I didn't even show you the cool part. Yeah, um, show me the show me the interface. You know, that's really that's that's I'm very curious about how how people a, interface and, and create patterns with uh when I touch these plants. They're actually capacitive touch sensors. There's metal inside these tentacles, and you can see them glowing and talking to each other. So a big part yeah. of this interface is going to be integration with sensors. I, yeah. I feel like, yeah, I kind of need to take a step back and give you the, the spiel before diving into these um, details. But basically, um, I want non-programmers to be able to use these things. I want them to be cheap and easy to use. I want them to integrate seamlessly with sensors and mm -hmm. I want the composition to feel like kind of an, if this, then that graph building experience where yeah. you can yeah, yeah. respond to sensors and go to an excited state or an idle state and um, have every I've been using uh, node red node red yep. is a great uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. interface for, for doing if then if this then yeah, that that's one of flows. the uh one of the inspirations absolutely node red does it for iot stuff um i want to do that for uh for interactive art where leds are part of it um the audio is off there but there's also a speaker in each one of those and when you touch it it plays a sound um integrating microphones i have all these digital microphones here on my desk basically yeah. creating the unified kind of input and output for interactive art. When this event happens, respond in that way, change these parameters in this way. Uh, sure, if you want to tie this parameter to like a DMX slider or an OSC fader or all those things, no problem at all. Since our configuration here, our patterns are all configuration. So we, we know what these parameters are and these sliders and these faders. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of um, I feel like I'm not conveying this in a very organized manner, but that is a big part of um, of what we're thinking of. Uh, and if I take a, cool, another man. step, yeah, back, I'd love to um, see the I'd love to see the screen, love to see the interface. I mean, I don't yeah. think you can screen share with this, but yeah, I'll, I'll definitely point, share it with you. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I realized um, and this is a realization I had during pandemic is that I don't really want to just make this tech in isolation. The only reason yeah. I'm making it is that the existing stuff out there is not doing what I want it to do. Uh, you know, Pixel Blaze even has a sensor board, but it's very hard to get multiple Pixel Blazes talking to each other. I know that there's Firestorm that suppose that, you know, helps with that, but um, none of these things are open source in a way that I can hack on them. None of them do what I want them to do. So here I am trying to rewrite the wheel that I really didn't want to rewrite, but um, actually very happy with, with the results that, um, that we have now. Um, That's cool. But so how far, step, how yeah, far out are you? From I realized that I don't want to work. I don't want to be the tech company. I don't want to be like the advotech of, um, kind of, of this interactive art. I want to make the interactive art itself. 
Yeah. And that's when I pivoted from just working on the tech to working on an installation that showcases the tech. And that's right. what I'm doing now. So everything I'm making at the moment is in service of this installation. Um, and that is an amazing thing, especially, um, you know, any, any time you're starting a company or starting some sort of venture, being able to focus on what you actually need and what people will actually use. This is the best way I can think of to make sure that I'm working on the right stuff uh, because we're using it in an installation in a few months, a team of many, many artists that are going to be using it and giving me immediate real-time feedback of, you know, this interface is kind of hard to use, or I wish I could do this kind of pattern, or I wish I had this kind of sensor and uh, kind of... What's, what's the venue that, that you're going to be... Uh... The venue is going to be gray area. I, you know, I don't know how public this stuff is yet, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. But, okay, but it's an um, actual, it's a, it's a venue you're going to do an art show. Yes. Essentially. Yes. It's going to, cool, it's going to happen this summer. It's going to ride the, uh, the post pandemic excitement and kind of desire to see things and do things, which is already yeah. happening. I saw the Oakland zoo has the Glofari happening right now and it's packed. I saw that. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's funny, man. There is going to be a Renaissance yeah. as soon as the pandemic lifts and, and the quarantine yeah. kind of eases and people kind of get more comfortable with uh with being around each other yeah um, exactly the roaring 20s here yeah. they come <laughs> that's very cool so you're going to do this thing at a venue that you just named so it's fine and uh yeah so but that's not the interactive art space that you're working on now that's that's a whole different thing well that is the first step towards it i think that yeah ultimately the uh the end goal here is a permanent installation uh super inspired by Meow Wolf. Uh, I'm sure that needs no introduction, but when I went to Meow Wolf for the first time uh, two or three years ago, I was shocked that people were lining up around the block to see the kind of art that normally I would consider Burning Man art or psychedelic art or niche festival art. And, and people were lining up for it. And that was the first time that I had that aha moment of, Actually, if you know, if you make this thing and make it available to people, they will actually come and see it and enjoy it. And uh, let me that's... ask you a question because th there's actually been there's been a number of um, immersive art spaces that have come and gone, yeah. and like I have my own my own you know theories about why why certain ones succeed and fail. Yeah, what do you think it is about Meow Wolf in particular that that made that such success, whereas like some of the other ones that we've seen. Yeah. Not so much. Um, I have many answers to that because I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, I, I think that, I guess, I, I think some some uh, conceptual things and some technical and mechanical things. So uh, on more on a meta level, I think that Meow Wolf was created by 200 artists and their art is all in the same space and overlapping and that means that even if some of it is not your cup of tea, definitely some of it will be. You will find some subset of those 200 artists will speak to you and you will feel that the installation as a whole spoke to you. And, you right. know, I did not care for the narrative there at all. It's just not when I go to that installation, the last thing I want to do is, is dive into some book that's telling me about a family. I just didn't care. Uh, a lot of people spend a lot of effort on that. And for some people, they love the narrative and that's what they go there for. Uh, but there were so many other things that I loved. 
in, in my opinion, it's that narrative that made it successful. You know, it's like, it's, it, it needs, even if you're not like, okay, I don't want to do like the, the MMO, MMORPG thing, but like, mm-hmm. it's the fact that there's some kind of thread and, and cohesive storyline that makes it an experience. Yeah. Whereas it's not just a collection of art. It is like, it's pieces of a story. Um, well, I think that for me personally, consuming that art, even if it had no narrative, it would still be just as compelling. Um, mm. But I do think that uh, the narrative, my interpretation of that is that the narrative gives a sense of depth. There's more to it than, than just what meets the eye. And you can, you can just scratch the surface a bit and keep digging. And I think the narrative gives that feeling. And I think that if you figure out how to give that feeling in other ways, that, that feeling of there is something to discover here, there is depth. Um, I, I really think that that might serve the same, the same purpose and, and keep it appealing. And, and here's why I think that. Um, I have been to installations that had a narrative and I just did not connect to it at all. And those installations failed, uh, you know, didn't even last a year. Like which ones? In, in just... um, out of curiosity. I, you know, I don't I don't really like naming names, especially when when being critical of them. Uh, but there was an installation in San Francisco, um, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, and it did not last a year. And it See, had... I don't I think that that one in particular did not have a narrative. Right. There, well, there it, was no narrative to that. It, one. Didn't it was come literally across just... in the art. But yeah, it it it, it felt like the collection of of separate exhibits um exactly. a lot of them sponsored by a tech company that had a 3d camera that they were showing off and right um, it, it didn't it, it felt like okay you you see everything once and and there's not there's no depth there's no you can't keep diving into it and it's, it's true that sense that, of depth yeah it's the and, sense of depth that like and for me that... in in the installation that we're working on in the summer um i don't you know there might be some rich narrative uh, but there might not. And that sense of depth might end up being conveyed by feeling like there are secrets to discover and unlock just in the in, in kind of the interactivity. Um, there's going to be a forest of plants of different species there and realizing that they respond to you in certain ways. And, and if you do certain things, they respond in, 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 in one way. And if you do something else, they respond in a different way. And maybe they have an effect on some other part of the installation. And um, yeah, you mentioned pulling threads before. You will absolutely be able to pull at threads and discover more and feel like there's more depth and that you can't quite see everything in one go. Um, Do you guys have like an art director that you're working with or somebody who's kind of like um, got like a bird's eye view on the, the, different pieces or is it just kind of like are you just like collecting artists essentially um i i'm serving in that role right now for better or for worse um i do have a bird's eye view of what this will look like and i'm, I'm trying not to say too much about it um, yeah and the narrative that exists right now is a loose one which as you know kind of a low resolution one where as we get closer to launching we'll get more detailed and more elaborate but and, and you know it's it's maybe not the best approach or the best attitude, but I I do believe that if you make a magical experience, if you create a space that really feels magical, 
mm-hmm. then then people will care about the narrative. And I agree if with you, that. 100%. If you have an amazing narrative, but it doesn't feel magical, then no one's going to care what your narrative is. And that's yeah, why I, the focus is, okay, how do we make a space that is very magical? Right. And and that's the that's the key, right? Is figuring out that like what is magic, you know, and like what does feel magical. And it's it's different for everybody, but there's there's very much like I feel like everybody can agree when when something hits it on the head. And everybody can agree when something misses it, you know. Everybody might everybody might have a different aesthetic, but you know, I think that like Meow Wolf hit it and they hit it for the public. And it's it's a magical experience. You know, Team Lab, Team. I was just in Japan uh, last year, year and a half ago. They they hit it, you know, and they did that with projection. And I'm actually not a huge fan of like immersive projection experiences, but they really did a good job. Agreed. And I think it was something no one had seen before, and and, and it was very it was very you know effective. Um, yeah, I, agree. I actually that 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 experience in San Francisco that didn't do so well. I, I thought they they relied a little too heavily on projection and my 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 favorite part of that whole thing was like the first room where it was kind of like this forest vibe and i was just like that's fucking cool and then what happened yeah <laughs> you, you know, know I, mean? I was very sad to discover that that initial room wasn't even part of the installation it was the artist that owned the building before them left it there. I know. so I know. yeah there's a lot of uh a lot of mixed feelings about that uh, you know about that feeling of do you have the magic or not? There's something in my research of trying to nail that down. There's something that I learned, a small secret that I will share with you. Um, when you ask people how how was their experience, how did they enjoy it, uh, t- people t- typically say that it was it was yeah it was good. I liked it, and they'll say right. that about any installation they went to. And the real way to figure out if if that magic is there or not is to ask them if they would go back there. And that's when you right. really learn how they feel about the place. And when you ask people if they would go back to, I don't know, some of these installations that that exist today, um, often the response is, uh, yeah, maybe if I have nothing better to do or if I have a guest from out of town or something like that. And right. if you ask people that have been to Meow Wolf if they would go back there, the answer is, fuck yeah, absolutely. I yeah. can't wait to go back there. And that difference is such a stark difference. Um, especially compared to the first question of like, how did you like it? Where people are typically, yeah, it was good. I liked it. Yeah. Um, in both cases. So that that is how to know if you have the magic or not. But that's not how to create the magic. How to create the right. magic, that's an entirely different question. And I have lots of thoughts about that, too. I think the sense of depth is one of them. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I love the fact that Meow Wolf feels like one giant exhibit as opposed to a series of linear installations that's that's kind of what i'm getting at with the story element it's not necessarily like a literal story but it's like a visual narrative right and that visual narrative carries through from one thing to the next so it's not like just a spattering of random art it's like it's a visual story and you're moving from one thing that that slides seamlessly into the next thing and it makes it feel like an immersive environment, right? 100%. That's what it is. It's an immersive environment. Yep. Um, like think, when you go out into nature, when you're like, when you're hiking, you know, it's not like you move from one 
like chunk of nature to another there's like it's a flow yeah. and and it's a visual flow and, yep. I, and yeah and the That's installation actually, that we're planning is absolutely going to have that property to it there's going to be one cool. line that you wait in and hopefully because it's going to be super busy and everyone's going to go there and once you get in um you're in there are no separate lines that you have to wait in um, kind of the same the same approach as meow wolf so it's kind of like a free like a free flow people just like wander yeah. around yeah or... exactly choose your own cool. adventure exactly so do you have do you have the venue and do you have the artists all picked out i have the venue i have some of the artists we're definitely going to need more i have the overarching concept the kind of loose narrative i have a floor plan which is also a low resolution floor plan that will get more detailed and fleshed out as we approach uh, the public opening um, yeah. and yeah and a lot of a lot of ideas not all of them will make it in but um, yeah super excited can you about it. can you talk about some of the artists that you've chosen sure well the um the sculptures that I showed you earlier made by uh, Eric Dunn. Uh, he's a resin sculptor from Sonoma. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. his work. I've been following him for years. Uh, he's the first artist I approached when I was thinking of this concept. And I'm super grateful that he said yes. Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a cool guy, man. He's a, he's a, he's a interest. He's like a very interesting guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. It's really great working with him. Um, and then uh, Keegan, who is X Symmetry, I know Keegan. Um, yeah, I've I've been following him for a while too, and uh, I love the kind of the pragmatism that he has, uh, having seen installations uh, from concept to successful installation, and uh, he kind of knows what it takes to make that happen. Um, yeah. and he has an, a a great eye for the small subtleties that make the difference between something truly magical and not. And, um, you know, whether it's having the right frame rate and how to diffuse things and um, not everyone has that eye. Uh, and he definitely yeah. does. Um, I am talking to quite a few people in our various art and festival communities, various set designers and people that I've worked with. Um, you know, I've worked on, on enough small weird art pieces for these small niche festivals uh to kind of have a, a pool of people that it's not their full-time job but they also have done enough cool weird art that uh i definitely want to showcase and again stepping back i feel like the kind of art that i enjoy consuming is not really represented in the city in a way that is accessible to the public in a way that's accessible to the 20 million tourists that come here in every non-pandemic year. Um, you know, a lot of stuff that makes it to Burning Man and to these festivals, uh, um, it's just when, when tourists come to San Francisco and they think of art, they go to the MoMA or they go to Alcatraz or they go to Pier 39 or they go to, I don't know, a lot of um, San Francisco landmarks, but the rich and vibrant psychedelic technical art community that thrives here is completely not represented in any of right. the public art. And yeah. sure you can go and take a selfie in a swimming pool with whatever confetti. It's not, that's not the art that, that we consume. That's not the art that we make, but that is the art that tourists that come here, that's what they end up seeing. So 
um, I really want to change that. I really want to to make something that feels like the flavor of local stuff that that we are aware of and that we make and that we consume. Um, Talk to Sean, Stephen, and Ashley. They do some really cool kinetics. Yeah, uh, sustainable magic. I've you know I've been in touch with them for years. Uh, they have yeah. the, the flowers, the robotic flowers that open up. Uh, yeah. They they were an inspiration for me when I just moved to San Francisco. I was deep in, in startup land, and Sean and Ashley they were doing art full time, and they they had their Kickstarter campaign for their van for doing workshops and and kind of teaching people how to do all the cool stuff that they were doing, and in the same way that Meow Wolf gave me that sense of actually it's possible you can do it, uh, Sean and Ashley gave me that sense of yeah, you can live in the Bay Area and you can actually make art and share it with people. And that's what you do. Um, yeah. So I definitely appreciate that. And I'm grateful that, that they showed me the way. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about artists from outside the Bay? Like, you know, through the, through the course of doing this podcast of, mm -hmm. and, and just traveling, you know, one of my favorite things to do is travel internationally. And, uh, you know, it's, if you, if you, if you know an artist or, an artist's work and you're like that artist is killing it that that's some amazing artwork all you got to do is reach out and be like hey let's get a beer and then yeah. show up and then yeah. they're, they're happy you know like yeah. nine they're unless they're assholes <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're happy to go kick it you know and I, there's so many cool artists man like over in europe they're like play modes like timo lejeune yeah. there, there's a lot of really and it's a different style. It's a very different, like, I feel like European light art is a very, it has like a different overarching feel to it, you know, but it, it's, it's cool. And like, it would be fucking awesome to represent over here. Yeah. Um, you yeah, know, a I'll lot of honest, I'm not like, familiar with, uh, with, with too many European light artists. Uh, mostly the local scene here is what I'm familiar with. Um, you mentioned Brian. Um, I'm a fan of Brian. I feel like uh, when it comes to... He's uh, not local anymore. Yeah, he moved to... Uh, Denver. Yeah. But I, I think, I feel when I look at his art, I feel like he gets it. And what I mean by that is that he's not creating a surface that he's projecting kind of a 2D screen onto or even a 3D screen onto. He it really feels like his art is aware of its shape Right. In, in a sense that is more than just as a surface for projecting a YouTube clip onto. Um, and, sure. uh, and, uh, and I, I like that a lot and am definitely inspired by him. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he, he, his approach to his pattern engine is also driven by parameters and he comes from the traditional, uh, lighting, uh, kind of DMX lighting world. And that's how he no, thinks he about doesn't. his pattern engine. Well, he he's catering to that all. world with his product. Um, he thinks no, of it, he doesn't. You know? No, he like that's been a. Me and Brian worked together like ten years ago, man, and oh, like, yeah. like I come from the DMX world. Mm -hmm. He comes from a programmatic world, very similar to where you come from. It, mm -hmm. it feels like, and even now, like, his product is able to receive ArtNet commands. Mm -hmm. It's almost like his pattern engine has a bunch of handles that I can control via ArtNet. Yep. So I can turn up the the amplitude or change the hue or or 
you know, yeah, I can control handles and parameters via DMX and ArtNet, but that's only because through our collaborations, I was like, homie, this is like, like, I, I need this. And he's like, yeah. okay, well, I make this. And I'm like, well, let's figure out a way to make them work. <laughs> yeah, I guess I saw it when it was in that state already. So so I thought that that's where he came from. Uh, and it's no, cool to no. know that, that that influence is from you. That's super cool. Um, but I, I, I am... Uh, the engine that I'm working on now absolutely has that as well, built into its very fabric, uh, where yeah. every parameter is controllable by, you know, from the outside, whether it's ArtNet or MIDI or OSC or whatever. Um, um, and I, I really like that approach. And it's kind of moving away from, um, from the let's create a huge surface and just project on it, which I think that's like the LED lab approach. And the, uh, the Pix lights are very often used for things like that. Uh, and I think they yeah, do. Yeah, I'm not a big. F- yeah, well, yeah. I'm not going to say shit. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, it's it's. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think that the best LED canvases, right, are the ones that treat the canvas not as a video screen, but as exactly. as like a sculptural element, and uh, and you exactly. create art algorithmically. Like the patterns are created algorithmically. That's why I like Smode, man. I love Smode. I love even like Madrix was how I got started with that. And Madrix has like generators. Mm-hmm. And essentially you're able to use those generators to create um yeah, generative patterns to to run across your canvas. And um mm-hmm. yeah, Madrix is very, very linear. It's very like grid. And that's that's you know in- inevitably why we moved away from it. But um yeah, generative patterns, man. Yeah, Whether I haven't used mode a- to be completely honest. Um, but that my approach is definitely one of like algorithmic uh, composition, and not you're not going to be recording some movie and then playing it back. That's not how I think about. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's funny, man. I, I had a long a long conversation with Mark Mark Slee, and we were talking about that, you know, and his 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 pattern engine, which is also yeah. like, I've, I've never like used it, but I'm fascinated by it. And I really would like to, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not quite there for us to use in our projects. But. Yeah. Alex is amazing. Uh, Mark is a DJ and I think that his approach towards led, um, kind of pattern creation is very much influenced by being a musician and a music creator. And well, it's all uh, LFOs. It's all LFOs, <laughs> and uh, and I definitely uh, borrowed that as well from my pattern engine. Um, yeah. And it's LFOs, and it's connecting to sensors, and it's uh, the the you know dragging a fader to a parameter is very uh, similar to how you would do it in Ableton and in other DJ software. And um, it, it makes a lot of sense that when a DJ software engineer designs a pattern engine, that's what it looks like. I think that it still is in the paradigm of having a central server pushing pixels out. And it yeah, really depends it on having a good uh, mapping, a th- kind of a 3D model of what your art looks like. Uh, because yeah. LX is basically an amazing 3D renderer that then gets mapped onto the 3D skull, uh, structure. So tell me how, how your engine deals with mapping. Because that's honestly, that, that consumes most of my like... yeah. With digital ambience, like mapping is what 
that's where my head is. It's like totally. taking physical objects, getting that data into software, and then mapping light patterns onto those those yeah. those forms. And that's so, an art form. That well, that's a that's a skill set in and of itself, man. It is. Yeah, it's complicated. I agree. I, agree. <laughs> I think that um, yeah, if you happen to build your sculpture in a way that it that includes a, a 3D model, then you can often kind of export that 3D data and, and turn it into a an LED mapping. It's time consuming. It's very manual. It it depends on uh, having a good you know when designing the 3D structure, uh, kind of having an understanding of the mapping challenges. Um, there are algorithmic ways of doing it. I think Kyle from from Symmetry, or even before Symmetry, he he wrote something that uses OpenCV and webcams and does auto mapping by playing uh, known colors to known pixels and tracking their position and triangulating it and basically automating See, that process. Chris Christopher Shart did that with uh, LED Lab, and I, I got to tell you, it doesn't like it works fine for a flat screen, but that's it's about finicky it. And it's, yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's it's a really hard problem. And what I decided to do is to constrain the problem, and I only do two D mapping, but I do two D mapping at a time. And what I mean by that is that you can basically layer multiple multiple layers of um, uh, of two D mapping that all together create this rich three D world. Um, and maybe this is more relevant to the installation that I'm making now, which is this magical forest that has hundreds of individual controllers and sculptures. But the idea is that there's a 2D mapping where every sculpture knows its position in X and Y. But then for each sculpture, there's another 2D mapping where it knows in, in a different set of two dimensions uh, kind of where its orientation is up or down or left or right. And the idea is that uh, you can compose a complex scene where each individual component is a 2D surface that can be... It can be from top down, or it can be from the front, or it can be from the side. It doesn't really matter. But creating those 2D mappings as opposed to 3D is actually much easier. You can take a picture yeah. of your art, and then on top of that, overlay a simple like um, a simple vector editor and splines and simple curves and and kind of fit them and create a very accurate 2D mapping by just dragging a few things. None of that webcam stuff, none of that OpenCV stuff, it's still manual. You have the reference picture that you took of the actual art to help you get the proportions right. You just say, this is, you know, strip number three, and it's got 80 pixels in it, and that's it. You're done. It's mapped. Yeah. Um, Everybody and- has a different a, a different approach to mapping. Yeah. And, you know, I've used, like, I've used them all, man. Like, I've, I've gone through all of them. And it's funny because now we'll take, like, for simple projects, we'll take one product that does a great job with mapping and we'll take that map and we'll export it as a csv and we'll import it into another product that has yeah. a great generative engine yeah and then we'll yeah. take that sometimes and we'll load it into another program that does 3d yep. right so it's like it's really about these complex workflows but um yeah yeah so in your installation is is the is the Shlomo mapping system the only mapping system that's allowed, or are you going to have artists that do their own? Because most artists have their own workflow. Like yeah. to be honest, like most artists do. You know, I think that a big part of what we're doing 
is actually drastically reducing the barrier to entry of what it means to be an artist that makes interactive LED art. And I mm. think that the fact that today there's a certain technical prowess that's required, whether it's coding, you know, Pixelblaze wants you to, to create mapping in JavaScript and, um, uh, or, you know, manually editing a lot of configuration files. I am basically, I really want to create a tool that will let non-programmers do this magic that was kind of locked up in this club of programmers and highly technical people and open it up yeah. to everyone. So when I'm thinking of the artists that are going to be working on this, they don't have existing workflows because none of this was available to them. These are uh, kind of interaction designers and visual artists and set designers and people that have an amazing aesthetic, but they don't have the tools to express that aesthetic using all of this technology. And I'm going to give them this tool, which doesn't you know fully exist yet, uh, so no one yeah. has a workflow for it. And I'm going to say, right. you have all of these input devices and all of these output devices, and you can respond to these events, and you can layer these patterns and change their parameters and tie them to sensors. Let's make something amazing. What, what are you missing for this to really feel like what you want it to feel? Um, so, yeah. yeah, I'm definitely, uh, you know, I, another artist, local artist that I like a lot is uh, Rich DDT. I think he yeah, makes amazing. Uh, yeah. He uh, his his um, he also gets it in a very deep level, and his uh, kind of multi sensory stuff, where he combines LEDs with sound and tactile yeah. and low latency on everything, and um, he gets it definitely. Um, and, and I'm excited to potentially work with him on this as well. And sure, a lot of our a lot of artists, as you said, have existing workflows, but I'm hoping to present a larger collection of artists with a huge playground and a rich set of tools and kind of yeah. see what they can come up with. And it's going to be less about, you know, make whatever you want and hope that we can jam it into this and that it fits. It's going to be a lot more like, this is the space. It's this alien botanical garden um, that has all That's of these input cool and concept, output man. devices. Yeah. And yeah. let's, you know, how do we compose them? in a way that's awesome visually and how do we add interactions that feel like invite people to figure out how they work and solve environmental puzzles and uh, that's right. that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. See it's funny man like I'm I'm really into into volumetrics and like when you're describing your space if I was going to do a piece I would want to do something with volumetrics. There there's a product that we've developed over years and years of iterating mm -hmm. which is essentially like a very delicate pixel strand. Um it's durable but it's very like visually delicate mm -hmm. and it allows you to create a um point cloud like a pic like yeah, like like a, like a three dimensional pixel array, and then with, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're able to map patterns in three dimensions, so we can take a three D model and map that in. And I'm like envisioning like, yeah. you know, like um, when you're in a, in like a, you know, you know, like um, Avatar, like the jungle, they've got those like glowing vines. It's that like, is that's absolutely what I would the inspiration for this installation. Yeah, that's what the, I would want to do. The pitch I deck make like has a, a snapshot of Avatar on it. And, uh, um, yeah. And, you know, what do you, so what do you do about volumetrics? So LX that's Mark Slee's software. That's yeah. how it works in volumetrics. It is a 3d volumetric pattern engine. Um, so you and, are using other people's software. Um, 
this installation, uh, we're thinking about it as having kind of two modes. It has the exploration mode and it has the event mode. In the event mode, we're building a DJ booth right into it, and it's going to have a dance floor as part of it. And in um, in this mode, yes, it's going to be playing volumetric patterns. Um, What about interactive volumetric patterns? Potentially, because for example, with Smode, you can take you can take a three D model and you can have a generative pattern that that is a generative three D pattern, and then you can affect that pattern with input. So you can take the input from sensors, for example, and modulate your 3D generative pattern that's expressing on like whatever. Yeah, music and or sensor or whatever. Yeah. yeah, man. And that's that's like, I don't know. I, I see that like volumetrics is like this whole other um, potential arena where you could incorporate yeah. uh, sensor data. Right and, yeah, and like real time feedback. I don't. I don't. Th- I don't see it as a, as a separate problem. I think that um, it's basically how good is your mapping. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, and right. can the pattern engine generate three D patterns instead of two D patterns? It absolutely can. Um, honestly, yeah. I would just use LX at that point because LX has solved that problem. And yes, this installation will definitely combine a lot of different tech. Um, LX is one of them. I'm talking to Mark Slee about it, and I'm excited about. You know, the fact that every plant knows its location in the mm. 3D world and kind of knows what kind of plant it is and what kind of shape it is means that LX can query it programmatically and plot them in a 3D space and kind of do volumetric stuff without manually mapping things. And it won't be as accurate as if you did painstakingly map each pixel, but even if you have just kind of a 2D mapping of each plant, and you have an effect that ripples from one point in the center outwards, and each plant in turn lights up and does some effect, and it's very clearly done in sequence, and there's some spatial awareness here, even though each plant, maybe when it gets triggered, it will do some pulse upwards or some glow or some you know, some other effect. But at a macro level, yes, there's spatial awareness here. There is this volumetric feeling and something that I did not mention yet, um, except briefly when I said Unity earlier, is that the edges of this world are all going to be virtual world and Unity that in, it, uh, continues the physical world. Yeah. Right? If you touch it's a, a physical sculpture, it will ripple to its neighbors. And when it reaches the projection boundary, it will keep rippling into the virtual world. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So you're doing all that in Unity. Unity is such a great environment. I love Unity. Yeah. I've actually done a lot more in the Unreal Engine, but like Unity is so cool. Like yeah. it's a very, very cool environment. Yep. Yep. I agree. The graph editing in Unity is also an inspiration for the editor that I'm, I'm working on for my pattern engine. It's called Canopy, by the way. Um, cool. So how can I play with your, uh, how can I play with your, uh, yeah, your, I, your, I just, your I'll give you device. some controllers and, and let you play with it. It's not quite ready for prime time. And I think one of the side effects of, working on this installation now instead of just focusing on the tech is that the tech is going to be less polished uh, right because I'm, I'm focusing on just the, the the mandatory functionality that we need to make this installation happen which means that it's not going to be as pretty and we're not going to do fcc certification yet and we're not going to write the user manual and all of these extra steps that we have to take for productizing it yeah. We're not going to do them yet. So I will share it with you and it's going to be rough, but you will be able to edit these patterns without writing a single line of code. 
and you'll be able to layer them and mix them and change their parameters and expose them to ArtNet if you want, or to OSC or to anything else. Um, and I think that's what, like, from, from my perspective, it would be, like, I've always been fascinated about that paradigm of LED controller, and I've always seen so much potential working with Brian, where it's like, I get it, man. Like, I understand the, the draw of a distributed pattern engine. I want that capability. Can you, like, give me some hardware to play with? Because I would love to be a collaborator in the development of that kind of thing. And then, like, dude, there's an entire, like, my mindset of, of working with LEDs represents an entire, like, section of, of the light art market. Right. And if you're trying to market this thing as a tool, there are there is an army of people of various skill levels, but who come at light art creation from this mindset, from the, the mindset of a show production. Yeah, yeah. mindset. Right. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. Exactly I, I grew up on the stage. That's how like I learned about lighting, LEDs yeah. Yeah. and and yeah, yeah. and mapping. And uh I think that there's a lot of potential to use the tool that you're you're designing through that paradigm and it would be so fucking cool to to work as like a beta tester you know yeah. and and to yeah, to use that so that software and that that product in some of our upcoming projects and just give you feedback like hey this is fucking awesome but it I broke here that. or maybe like if you included this tweak it would be infinitely more yeah. you know, useful in this situation. Absolutely. That would be, that would be amazing. I would love that feedback and I would just love to share it with you. Um, and it, it's also important for me that it works on any of the standard kind of maker controllers out there. This will work on yeah. an Arduino and it will work uh, on whatever you end up using. My dream is that non-programmers will be able to use this editor and edit their pattern, kind of export it to a JSON file or an any file just paste that into their Arduino and that's it. It renders the exact pattern that they, right. um, that they configured patterns. And so this is cross platform. You're not, you're not tied to a certain hardware platform. This is like, that's cool. That's definitely the way to do it. It's yeah. also going to make it much more difficult. I think to, to get a consistent experience in that, like it'll be harder for you to control for things like frame rate when you've got people trying to run this on like an Arduino Uno or whatever the fuck, you know, like, like the Arduino mini and, the, or, yeah. you know, or like whatever. And they're like, my shit's all chunky. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's pretty easy to predict how fast it will run and how much memory it will consume in the editor is it, itself. Um, a lot of, you know, often the, the pixels that we all use, the three wire pixels, they have a known rate of 800 kilobits per second which means that you know how many pixels you can render in, you know, in a second, in a frame in a second. And if someone is creating a pattern that is 1000 pixels long, you know that the frame rate is going to suck. And you're like, hey, Here's if the you thing, though, like the, the, the range of available pixels has blossomed. And now like we haven't used the 28 family in years because the, the PWM rate for those pixels is so low that doing doing things with great dynamic range, like where you have to fade down into like very dim uh, brightness levels mm -hmm. results in some really nasty chunking. Yeah. And uh, yeah. because of that, we've, we've migrated to different pixel types and like, we probably have like a toolbox of like 
a dozen different pixel types that we use for different scenarios, you know, depending on like, oh, we need a 24 volt system. We're going to use this pixel type because we can drive it at 12 volt, which means we can have a three LED pixel yep. uh, that runs at 24 volts or we want 16 bit color and, and a, a gamma correction, you know, and we use a different pixel for that. And then we've got manufacturer partners in Shenzhen who can produce custom form factors for us, like on spec at, at low volume. And so That's like pretty great. Yeah. Having the ability to talk to those pixel types, mm-hmm. you should plan for that man like because that's like that's one of the main factors in us in choosing an led controller is like can it talk to our our fucking basket of pixels you know and the way i'm thinking about this is um uh, if we dive into the engineering for a second uh there is a yeah there's a, a separation of concerns between the engine that renders the pixels sorry that you know generates the patterns into memory and then the other system that takes those pixels from memory and pushes them out to the actual hardware, to the actual sure. physical pixels. Um, Canopy cares mostly about the first part. Is that Canopy, the name of your product? Yeah, so specifically the pattern engine. Um, Canopy will take the configuration, the JSON file, and give you an array of RGB values. Right. That's all it does. Taking that array of RGB values and pushing it out to pixels, that's a separate thing. Right now, we're using fast LED. You can use the Adafruit libraries. You can use anything you want that will take, you know, send it over the network to Pixlight, send it. So to... is, is fast LED still being developed? I don't, I don't want to segue, but just that, yeah. uh, what's his name? He passed away. Daniel, yeah. That was very Yeah, sad. Daniel. Daniel Garcia. That was tragic. Um, it is still developed. His, his kind of partner in fast led is uh, Mark, is still actively working on it, as well as a bunch of, contributors from the community. Uh, I think someone named Sam is uh, actively working on it um, as well. I mean, I think it is still very actively maintained. It still has thousands of downloads a day. Uh, it has an active Reddit community. Yep. Um, and it's, uh, it's ab- like, I am relying on it heavily for a lot of canopy stuff. So I, I mentioned that FastLED is what drives the pixels to the actual hardware, but um, I think that the design of fast LED is brilliant. And the way that Mark and Daniel thought about kind of the building blocks that they provide there are, are I wrap them with a UI almost one-to-one in terms right. of the math functions and the layering and the blending and the palettes. Um, and I, I really think that uh, they did a great job there. And, and my, uh, my canopy is basically exposing fast led to non-programmers that's how i think right. about it and that's brilliant um yeah it, it's a it's it's definitely would not be possible or not nearly as possible without fast led i'm very grateful for that library and, and i think a big reason for me making canopy and open sourcing it and sharing it with the maker community is kind of giving back after having used fast led for so many years and benefiting from that community uh, Tree of Tenere uses fast LED for its guts for all the rendering. Right. Um, so is your controller going to, I'm curious how your controller will scale um, to large installations with like, yeah. with, with hundreds of thousands of pixels. Is it the same kind of engine that was used on the tree 
or is it um, the some... tree didn't have its own engine the tree had the paradigm of a central computer that was pushing pixels yeah, yeah. Um, that that was lx and it was pushing them over um, opc yeah um, and uh, the controller just took the opc stream and paralleled out to eight eight strips per controller very few people very few very few products use that 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 uh um that protocol it's interesting yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's made locally. It's made by Ping, I think. Right? He's the, yeah, I know the Ping. local artist that made it. Um, yeah. It it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's a very thin, lightweight protocol. It's written by someone competent in C, and it's very obvious. Um, you know, I again, I, I don't I don't like bad mouthing, uh, but but I'm about to bad mouth. Uh, <laughs> OSC, it, OSC, not OPC, OSC is kind of the the replacement for MIDI and what what a lot of people have embraced as the way to control faders it's i think a disaster um well that's not a pixel protocol it's not you're right it's that's, a fader that's protocol. not a that's different that's um, that's totally different osc or yeah osc yeah. is fine for what it is man yeah, like it yeah, yeah. I, I like osc because what are the fucking alternatives? Like, what am I going to do other than OSC? I'm going to use like DMX or Artnet. I mean, I yeah, agree maybe that it I serves its like purpose. That. I just mean in terms of the implementation. When me as a programmer, when I look at it, it it there are some choices there that were made by um, by I, if the person that designed OPC was also the one that designed OSC, it would look very different. That's that's what sure. I'm going to say. So. Uh, all of this is to say that OSC is simple and elegant. It does what it's supposed to. It's lightweight. It can be implemented in 10 lines of C, which is delightful. Mm. Um, that's why I chose it. It's such a low overhead and so easy you to use OPC. I used it for Tenere. It was super easy to integrate. And Mark Slee on the LX side, he's like, oh, we don't support that now, but here, hold my beer. And he did it in half a day because it's that kind <laughs> of, it is such yeah, a yeah. lightweight protocol with a tiny right. header that just here, here's your channel, here's your data, do it. You know, man, I should talk to, I should talk to, I should talk to Luke at Advitech and I should talk to the, the makers of the software platforms that we use as, as our canvases. And I should be like, homies fucking implement this, do it, just yeah. do it. <laughs> you know, I understand why they're not doing it. And to your question of why that's not the one that's used, the professional people that are doing the professional lighting, they come, like you said, from the DMX world. So they're going to use the DMX over Ethernet, which is taking well, this I mean, really I'm... shitty protocol that was made for DMX cables and is limited to like 512, you know, single... Radiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it totally. is ridiculously... It's actually uh, 256, not yeah, 512. Sure, depends. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was made for um, when you had DMX cables and, and that hardware and... Here we are today, decades later, still using that protocol, but we wrapped it with a few layers to work over Ethernet. Um, and and OPC is kind of like, hey, we're not tethered to this old DMX stuff. Let's design right. it like we would if we had Ethernet and that you end up with something so much simpler. Um, yeah. And that's why I used it. And I, I forgot to mention, I also made a, a DMX controller um, and it has DMX output for controlling the, uh, you know, like the stage lights, the par lights. Um, I want my pattern engine to be able to control those as well. So it will take the pro the protocol and just spit out DMX. 
Well, here's the thing, man. Like your your device, in order to succeed commercially, will have to speak Artnet and DMX. Yeah. However, I agree with you 100%. It is an obsolete protocol. Yeah. It is just the one that – well, it's not obsolete. It is an antiquated protocol. Yeah. But it is the one that is literally spoken by all devices on the market now. Yeah. So in order for your product to be relevant, it needs to speak those protocols. Yeah. But I think that you're very smart for implementing protocols that are more forward thinking and better written. And I, for one, cannot wait until <laughs> the tools that I'm using speak a more forward thinking protocol. Like it's, it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And obviously we will support uh, Artnet. That's not a problem. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's literally is checking another like marketing bullet item of like, yes, we support this too. It's not a problem. There are existing libraries for, for all of these things. It's more than marketing though, man, because the same way that you want to empower non-programmers to use your platform, mm -hmm. there are, there, there is an army of artists out there that came up through that, through that technology tree that branch of the technology tree who are stuck in that paradigm because that's the only tools that they've had access to. And by speaking these protocols, it's essentially like going to a country and speaking that language. All of a sudden you allow these other artists to have access to the ideas that you're trying to spread. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, I think that um, I agree hundred percent. It's obviously more than just marketing and obviously a lot of people are using it. I think that my approach towards controllers is not at the moment, at least it's not make the best controller out there, but rather make right. the controller that does what the existing ones don't. And yeah. the existing controllers do not do pattern as configuration. So I'm doing that. They do not do deep sensor integration. They do not do like, talking to each other in an IOT mesh way, which is what our right. installation is going to do. I think that on the hardware side, we're also innovating with things. We have, I'm calling it like the smart output. Um, controllers today are not super resilient. Some of them have fuses that will blow out and you can replace. I think Pixlite has car fuses in it. Um, yep. I'm doing everything digital. So I'm going to have smart side switches, smart high side switches that can detect shorts and they can detect um you know measure the current and detect if an led dies and protect against reverse polarity and just make them completely bulletproof in that sense and when you do have a short it's not going to blow a fuse that you have to manually open some box and replace it's just going to shut down in software tell you about it let you fix the led thing and then keep working as if nothing happened yeah that's um, it that's is beyond me why existing controllers don't do that. It's kind of similar to Artnet. It's the old way of doing it is with this automotive fuse. Let's do the new way, which is right. Yeah. With fancier. So current parts. sensing is it's current sensing is trickier than that though, because what if you look at how would you implement current sensing in a way that accounts for strings of LED pixels drawing different amounts of current depending on temperature, different diodes drawing different amounts of current, different manufacturers manufacturing strip in different ways that draw different amounts of current. So current sensing is more complicated than you're making it out to sound. And I was talking to Luke about this the other day, where it's like, you can have a variety of configurations of strip yep. 
I'm not talking about like the commercially like available 2812 bullshit from Amazon, right? I'm talking about like if you're actually trying to make current sensing work in a in a universal way, it's I don't see how you would do that. Should when... I should I reveal my secret stuff? Because I already implemented this. It works. Um, yeah, no, no. I, I'm very curious, man, because like yeah. it is the future, and like Luke's doing that on his Mark III, and like they're eliminating fuses, like blah blah blah. But so here's how I change the fund. And Luke, yeah. if you're if you're listening to this, uh, go for it. Um, <laughs> I am. Um, it's not going to be. It, it will be current sensing all the time. But the idea is that when you power it on, or when you you go into a diagnostic mode, it knows how to incrementally light up the LEDs one at a time on full brightness white and measure right. the draw after each one. And that gives you two things. So it calibrates. One, it calibrates exactly. exactly. It counts how many there LEDs you, you have and it right. saves that calibration. And then in the future, you power up the controller. It does a quick diagnostic test of lighting them all up, measuring that against the calibrated value. You immediately yeah. know if you have a short or if you have a broken pixel. You also know yeah. how many LEDs you have because it counted them automatically during the calibration step. And it's yeah. it's easy enough. The current sensing is accurate enough where one LED at you know whatever voltage it's it's consuming um when it's full white, it's between 0.3 and 0.6 watts. Depends on the brand, depends on the pixel, depends on whatever. Um that is enough uh, to be able to detect it. Even if not at a resolution of one LED, you can detect it at a resolution of two or three or four LEDs. That's still good enough for this purpose. Right. Yeah. I was going to say this doesn't, there is some variation due to temperature change when the pixels heat up, but uh, yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant way to handle it, man. And honestly, I wouldn't worry about Luke. Like he's developing a fundamentally different product. What you're developing, I'm not, I'm not you're, you're developing, you're developing a, a canvas with a piece of hardware attached and what he's developing is just an led controller he has no interest he's not he's not an artist man like he he is a he's a fucking engineer yeah and yeah, that's yeah. what they're focused on they're they're focused on making the best led portal pass through yeah 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 to to the connect best pixel canvas. yeah exactly yeah, exactly. Although Pixel Pixel Pusher is another. I should talk to fucking Jazz or not yeah. Jazz. Jazz, right? Yeah, Jazz. Yeah, Jazz. I should. I fucking should get her on this podcast. I haven't talked to her in a million years, man. She's she's such a funny. She's a funny woman. I love that girl. <laughs> we worked with her before. We worked yeah. with her on a project. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. But yeah, Pixel Pusher <laughs> set the tone. I think that the controllers for Tenere, basically the attitude was pixel pusher costs a hundred bucks. We can make this with a bill of materials of eight bucks. Let's yeah, just do that. Right. And then we made that yeah, we yeah, made yeah. a few hundred of them and uh, for, you know, for, and, and it was in the form factor that we wanted and the connectors that we wanted and the power it uses the same Anderson power poles that pixel pusher used, but um, power poles are great. Not for outdoors, yeah. but they're great for uh, yeah. for indoor indoor use. Yeah, I kind of stopped using them. I started using the uh, like the XT O sixes, XT O nines. Yeah, we don't we don't use power poles for almost any installations unless it's indoor, just because they're press fit, you know. And it's like a press fit is like ripe for just the point unintentionally disconnecting. Yeah, you know the uh, the tree that's at Area fifteen right now, which uh, kind of blatantly copied the tree of Tenere controller. Uh, yeah. As a result, it's using power poles. 
just because. Right. Man, so Matthew Weigel is uh, an engineer that we work with frequently. He's um, one of the one of the the engineers who does the installation for the trees, and he's he's told me like, he's ah, man, like part of me like as a as an engineer, I want to create things that will last. Do you know what I mean? Things that will last for years. And when 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 I see you know things that that have been designed that fall apart quickly and and are not engineered with longevity and durability in mind it hurts right mm -hmm. and like what he's told me about the current trees it's just like it makes me cringe man it's like somebody taking a fingers down a chalkboard i'm like oh my god you know what i mean like there's one in oslo right now that's just like you know i mean who knows how much they spent on that shit it just falls apart it's falling apart and there's no one left there's no one left to maintain it it's like what do they do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's it's a it's a thing. Yeah. Do you know which parts are failing? I'm curious. Yeah, it's the it's the leaves. It's the internals. It's the the leaves themselves. The pixels inside the leaves. Um, to be fair, though, dude, like making something that will survive in Oslo, we're we're doing an installation in the British Virgin Islands, and that's like corrosive salty air. That's like direct sunlight. That's you know outdoor rain and moisture. It it's the challenge is the waterproofing the challenge is not like oh can you make like you know what i mean the challenge is like can you make this thing that's not going to survive at burning man for a week but that's going to survive on the beach for five fucking years you know that is a, a much greater challenge <laughs> i mean to their credit i think that um as someone who has built many uh companies and tech teams at this point I have a very strong belief that you do it properly the third time. It's impossible mm. to do it properly the first time. And I think that I'll agree um, with that. The uh, the Oslo tree is still kind of the same tech basically as the tree of Tenere, the Burning Man one. It was never yeah. it was never made to last. I actually don't know. I don't they may have had a second iteration on the leaves. I think it just takes many iterations to get it right. Yeah. And the fact no, that no I, I one has left you. its symmetry to maintain it, that's just unfortunate. But um, yeah, yeah. hopefully the next iterations of those trees will do a bit better. Yeah, I'm sure they will, man. You know, they're too, it's too good of an idea not to. And I'm sure that there will be more customers and more people and like, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, there's something to be said for like, like I feel like the most successful light art installations are those that take a page from nature, you know, like in the art that we do, we're, we always try to bring it back to nature and natural forms. Even if it's not like directly mimic it, like a plant, it's like all of the things that we do are like, they're, they're, um, it's, it's like parametric uh, generated architecture, right? Like what we do really is we accent architecture mm -hmm. and we accent like elements of architecture with light. Mm -hmm. So it's like you've got sculptural features in a building that, that, that form the, the, the structure that we light. And that, that's really what, you know, that's what DA is all about. And it's yeah. like we work very closely with, with, uh, with artists, uh, architects who are very into parametric parametric architecture totally. you know generating things through through algorithms and uh and that becomes like the shape of the building and the shape of the facade and yeah I love that it's stuff. cool 
yeah me too, it's man. a big big um guideline for what we're doing with our installation uh, which is i can tell Numina, by the way um i think that uh, we have a few guidelines. One of them is no rainbows. <laughs> Don't tell Brian that. <laughs> I know, I know. I, he has just fucking rainbows mode, but um, oh, yeah. it's so good, man! It's so good. It's like JFR. <laughs> I, we always gave him shit for that. It's like, homie, this is like the fucking iMac from two thousand three. <laughs> like, like, why are you? So I think, I think he's kind of aware of it. It, it is. Oh, he is know, tongue yeah. in cheek at this point. Totally, totally. So no rainbows. Yeah. No visible tech, no, you know, no visible yeah, yeah. LEDs, no visible wires, no hotspot, none of that. No frame rate is stuttering. Um, and then finally, everything looks organic. Everything looks like it is biology. Even if it's not the biology that we have here in our world, it, it still feels like a biology that evolved somewhere under some set of conditions. Uh, yeah. And that, you know, in terms of, you asked about the, the the art director or the creative director. That is the creative direction that we're working with. Um, That's a great. It's, it's a, a bit, great. It's a bit more star, specific man. than that, but that um, if if uh, any artist that we end up working with is going to have to agree to those three pillars of what this installation is going to look like. So let me ask you a question: Do you have a chipset, an LED chipset that you're 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 guiding your artists to use because let me tell you, man, that makes almost as much of a difference as the way you drive your pixel is the type of pixel you're driving. And like, 100%. Um, yeah. so we are uh, all the P you mentioned that the WS family has a PWM rate issue. Fuck, I think the fuck old that ones had, uh, yeah, <laughs> they were family. like 400 Hertz PWM, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the APAs, the, you know, the four wire ones, they have 20 kilohertz. PWM, which is overkill. I think so anything listen. over two or three thousand hertz is fine for us. Yeah, that's kind of the. So I'm 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 very very like focused on chipset. I would love to fucking nerd out with you at some totally, point totally. if if you want on like yeah. the the things that I've discovered about the various chipsets because we've gone through them all, man. And like APA, it was a cool idea. The company is bullshit. Like APA as a company has screwed us over and they're, they're essentially there's been a clone of the apa the 9822 yep. which is actually yeah which is We're actually using um, sks for everything sk the, the 9822 yeah. the 6822s yep. um i think that i'm i'm fascinated by the new the ws 2815s which are part of the family that, that you dislike but the features that they have which is the redundant data line and the 12 volt bus make them very compelling for what we're doing now. Um, I think ultimately we're going to end up with a mix of chipsets. It's going to be yeah, impossible to do it all with one. Um, I love the 9822s. I love the um, the, tw the 2815s. And I love chipsets that have uh, warm white pixels in them in addition to the RGB. That makes so, a huge difference. RGBW is not available in a 12 volt form factor. Unfortunately, we do use the 6812 for our RGBW pixel, which is a five volt. You should look at the 8208, which is which is like the 2815. However, 2815s have heat problems, right? And they've been plagued by overheating issues, whereas the 8208 does not. I'll send you the spec sheet. Yeah, totally. And it's a native. It's a native RGB RGB 12 volt pixel. Yeah, I haven't heard of that, but I, I Google it and it takes me to Advitech, so they know what they're doing. <laughs> well, they, they support it. Actually, we were the ones who were like 
I was like, Luke, you got to, I like, set up a sample. I'm like, dude, if I can integrate this, we're, we're using this sort yeah. of project. We need it. That's good to know. I didn't realize that the, that the 15s had a heat problem. It's, uh, you know, it makes sense if they're individually stepping down the 12 volt for each LED, which is natively yeah, they a are. five volt part, but, or whatever it they're is. They're using a, they're using a, um, it's a current driven, it's like, it's constant voltage, but internal to the diode, it's current driven. And and that's how they do it, and yeah, they, it that's how they don't up. lose like all of all efficiency. And the twenty, the, maybe they fixed it, man. The twenty eight fifteen just traditionally had was plagued by by overheating issues, and it was a real thing. And like when we started using the twelve volt pixels, it was just like we tried them all, and we like burned out a bunch of twenty eight fifteens. We're like, fuck that, I'm going <laughs> yeah, over here. Move on to a different one. Totally. Yeah. I, you know, I know that um, the, the, some menu, there, there are, um, if you don't solder them correctly, right, you have to kind of demoisturize them before putting them in a reflow oven. Otherwise, you'll get failures. And, yeah. so, and not all manufacturers know about that or do it well. So, mm. And the WS family is notorious for failing in that way if the manufacturer did not kind of, you, you bake them at a low temperature before soldering them onto the strips and onto the boards. And you bake out the moisture. Yeah. Our, our manufacturer, we actually have a couple manufacturers and, and we use different manufacturers depending on the type of product that we're doing. But like the manufacturer that we use for strip very much focuses on addressable pixels. And a lot of the knowledge that we have about the addressable chipsets has come through working with this manufacturer. And uh, they're good. I trust them. That's good to yeah. have that. Uh, yeah, we have not reached a scale or a maturity where we have those kinds of relationships yet and honestly we're probably going to end up ordering things on aliexpress from trusted vendors but not yet do our own custom stuff um maybe for the next installation i definitely see this as being installation number one out of many uh, yeah, well listen man i would love to work with you guys on on the the manufacture of custom parts yeah totally. that's something that we do really well yeah. So yeah. just keep that in mind. I would love to have that conversation for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're in the city right now, right? That's where you live. I moved from San Francisco to East Bay very recently after 10 years in the city that finally moved out to the hills. That's right. Because when I called you and we were talking about the development thing, I remember you had told me you had just moved. How, how are you liking it? What do you, you think of the East Bay? I love it. I have suddenly an awareness of the seasons which i never had in yeah. the city i look out my right. window and i can see the birds and i can see how they change between the seasons and um that's amazing i think the real test is going to be once pandemic ends and things start opening up again and maybe i won't appreciate being as isolated uh, yeah. but well, let's you know let's wait a few months and see where where are you at in in the east bay um i'm in piedmont pines which is uh, kind of next to Montclair. Up in the hills. So up in the hills. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. It's that's that's a, such a beautiful area. Me and Felicia just went on a, like a, like a mushroom hike up in the redwoods. It was like fucking so healing. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. She, she just got a new place um, down by Lake Merritt, like kind of like yeah. North Lake. And it's a nice area. I, I've never lived by the lake before. I've always like, I've actually, I don't know if you know, uh, Lumen Labs, but it's like kind of down the bottom of Berkeley. You'll yeah. have to come by. Oh, it's, I, it's I a know cool Lumen, spot. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
cool yeah and um it's it's cool to like spend time in a in a different a different part of oakland's different part of the the east bay yeah you know it's different i you know i i went there the first time i was at lumen i think was when i approached brian and mark maybe five or six years ago about collaborating on something uh but i've been to many parties there and led meetups and it's always some excuse to go there uh, I yeah, think the most I recent... wonder if we met at like, I feel like we must have met, man. We must have met. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was, I think the swamp party was the last party I was at. That was the one with the, with the crazy skeleton that came in. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I was there for that one. I was, uh, I was, I was out in, um, I was in Cape town during that period. But um, yeah, I saw pictures. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um, and I think yeah, there were a few meetups there. That, like the LED or LEDs are awesome meetups that happened. The, yeah, I must have met you at those because I was at every single one of those with with Molly Molly Maloof. I actually um, just talked to her because this other thing that we're doing is you know very much like lighting and health and like so we were just like Molly like what's yeah, going totally. on coming. This be is the. Visit. The UV LEDs for killing viruses, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, essentially, circadian UV LED. Combine them both in the same fixture, you've got twenty-four hour cycle. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's good, man. It's coming right along, and like it's generating a lot of interest. So nice. Good luck. That sounds exciting. Yeah, it's fun, and it, it's really fun. Like. Honestly, I'm most excited about the the control system that we're using. It's based on uh, the Home Assistant platform, which is open source. It's yep. like open source IoT. Yep. It is so cool, man. Like physical computing is is awesome. Like creating rules that express themselves in the real environment is um, much like LED art. You know, it's like you write code, you see it in the real world. And it's like, that's fucking cool. I'm very passionate about that. Yeah. And that's also kind of configuration as opposed to code that's making things. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's also something that I looked at when thinking about my pattern engine as a, as an inspiration for sure. Um, Yeah. And I'm using the same, you know, ESP32 that that's all based on. So, well, so home assistance Raspi primarily runs on a, plethora of different platforms it you it does have an esp32 plugin or or like add-on or whatever yeah. but um yeah yeah you're right the server itself is, is a raspberry well, i guess i was actually, thinking of this it's actually anything yeah. it could be a virtual machine it could be a raspberry like there's so many different things that uh that it can run on but it is that paradigm of like configuration yeah. is the is the service yeah i was thinking know? of esp home not home assistant and es you can esp home is basically this configuration file where you configure the pins and the inputs and the outputs and this is a button and this is a knob and this controls a light and it compiles the firmware for you updates it for you over the air and that's mm. that you can have like an iot widget without knowing how to code but it's still customized and you know tailored for your needs and then it will talk to home assistant over whatever mqtt or whatever yeah i've seen that plugin yeah i've seen the other end of that i've never i've never fucked with like creating my own iot devices but i've definitely fucked with um tying in like 
Yeah, anything that will talk. You know, there's 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 a lot of um, interesting protocols arising around like IoT because you've got the IoT in the sense of like smart cities, and then you've got commercial spaces, and then you've got like residential yep. spaces. You know, and all we, of these are using different. Yeah, all of these are using different protocols, but they're all like Home Assistant is an operating system for physical space. That, that's what Home Assistant is fundamentally. And it's like with that operating system, you can plug in anything and create rules that coordinate behaviors between any of these these systems. And that's why it's so magical. That's why it's so powerful is because it's so fucking open. You know what I mean? Yeah, we might use it for our installation, by the way. We're definitely thinking of using MQTT for having all of the controllers uh, talk to each other and broadcast events and respond to sensors. Uh, you know, yeah. in a world in which each individual plant knows its XY location and share a time base, um, if you broadcast, you know, this kind of event happened in this location at this time, anyone can choose to respond to it or not. If it's within range, if it's responding to those kinds of events, um, a lot of the, the home automation and IoT paradigms are very much relevant for this thing that we're building. So we may end up actually using Home Assistant, but I'm not sure about that yet. What do you think about MQTT? Well, if you do end up using Home Assistant, man, I've literally spent the last year and a half fucking deep, deep diving in into it, that yeah. shit. I know it. Yeah. But um, what do you think about MQTT as a protocol? It solves the problem that it's meant to solve. It, for whatever reason, is the one that has been adopted by the community. Uh, I think it's messy as fuck. It is. It's, it's the, just... the one that gets adopted is not always the best one. But um, yeah. yeah, there are implementations so for all of the different IoT platforms out there. There are brokers. And today, when you go to Adafruit IoT, it's an MQTT broker. And you have the script that automatically installs a broker on your Raspberry Pi and... Uh, is Adafruit is Adafruit jumping in the IoT game? Yeah, I think it's I can't remember what it's like IO dot Adafruit dot whatever, or or, or <laughs> yeah. IoT dot whatever. But you, you open an account there, and they will give you a, a like an internet accessible MQTT broker, and you can have all of your IoT widgets talking to the Adafruit server, and you have graphs and control panels, and um, everyone's getting in on that game. And MQTT seems to be the language that they're all speaking. Um, yeah, but having kind is. of a, a pub sub kind of framework, there are dozens of them, and any one of them could have been the one that uh, that takes hold. And I think the fact that there were low resource implementations for embedded platforms for MQTT, it ended up winning because of that. You know, someone wrote the Arduino implementation and the ESP implementation, and when all of your end devices that are super small and cheap can speak that protocol, then that's the protocol you end up with. Right. And that's kind of the paradigm that we're trying to follow with this, this thing, man. It's like, be as open as possible, right? Integrate with as many different services yeah. and devices as possible. Totally. Because if, if you can do that, then there's no reason not to use your, not to use your system. Well, unless you're like Apple and I think that's a, I think that's an outdated I think that's an outdated way of thinking, man. I, I honestly do. I, I think agree that hundred percent. And um, I I don't think that my my stuff does kind of support Google Play uh, Google Assistant, but even that is more closed than I want it to be. 
Uh, I think Amazon you should have a way for Alexa somebody you, is the easiest one to integrate with at the moment. But. You you should totally have a way for somebody to be like, hey, hey, Canopy, <laughs> or like you know, you, you should yeah. make those API. You should tie it, into uh, those. I did it for the DMX controller. You can say, hey, change the light to blue or whatever, and it it works through right. Canopy. Yeah, I mean that's that's like people. You you're gonna have a bunch of customers who are gonna want to do that, dude. I guarantee you. Especially if your shit's really that easy to use, you're gonna have a lot of people on Amazon buying your controller and being like, "I want to hook my Philips Hues up to these." (laughs) You know what I mean? It's gonna happen. (laughs) And then they're gonna call you for for tech support, and then you're gonna hate your life. (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna know that I'm doing the right thing when uh, Philips sue me. That's how you know that you're making it in that world. I know. Well, I mean, if you're not actually pimping LED pixels, then they have no reason to. Philips will sue you if – so Philips owns the patent on the, the, the blue LED diode. Or no, no. Yeah, the blue LED diode and the, the method of PWM dimming. Think about that. Philips owns a patent on PWM. Which means if you're color mixing with PWM, which is the only way to color mix with an LED diode, you will open yourself up to a lawsuit from Philips. And that is a bullshit patent, right? It should not be allowed to exist. However, Philips owns it and they will essentially like mafia Don slam you for 10% of your, your gross revenue if you're deemed big enough for them to waste their, their, their lawyer dollars on. Yeah. yeah, that's relevant to anything with an LED, but I think they have patents that are specific to a network controllable lighting fixture that changes colors that you can control with an app, you know, or something like that. And I looked into this at the time because um, before this installation, my goal was to make these controllers and to make maybe light fixtures. And I looked into it and, and they just had all of those patents. And I figured, well, what if it's not a light fixture? What if it's an art piece? And you can change its pattern, but it's not for the purposes of light. It's for the purposes of art. And I think that that's right. okay. That is not uh, patented by them. But yeah, either way, I'm not, I'm not well, it's interesting actually because, worried about them suing me. But. Yeah, I mean, I, like until you get big, you, there's no reason to. Yeah. But like, I, I think that like there's a, there's a lot of light bulbs that are doing what the Hue, Hue is doing. Yeah. There are. You yeah. know, and mm-hmm. and those things are being sold. Like, you go on Amazon right now. Look for like Wi-Fi controllable. Yeah, like, that's all Chinese brands that don't really care about international copyright law. Usually. God, I love Chinese brands. <laughs> <laughs> that's the flip side is they will they will copy your shit instantly, man. So like Brian Brian Mark and I worked on a project probably eight years ago, and we developed a PCB that immediately got. You can go on Adafruit now, and you it's can the, the you round, can see, uh, yeah, man, the the round the, the that round fucking pixel platter. <laughs> it's like it's the same PCB layout. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what happens. It's it's a double edged sword. It's like yeah. cheap LED stuff, but your shit's gonna get copied. But if you go into things expecting that, then it's not necessarily that big a deal you can like plan your business model around that fact exactly i think the way i think about um you know definitely when thinking about making controllers and making a business out of them that is a concern why won't china just copy it and race to the bottom 
And I think well, that listen, every dude, one you're of not these, making yeah, it's, it's a you're whole, not making like, a controller. Yeah. You're making software, my friends. You are making something that China cannot copy because you're not loading that shit onto your controller until afterwards, right? Even if they, but I am open yeah. sourcing Canopy, so that kind of leaves the closed part is going to be the plumbing that makes it a seamless experience where you just plug it mm. in and edit live and use the web USB interface and like all of that. The plumbing is actually harder than the Canopy engine itself. I want Canopy to be open. I want you to be able to use the editor online, spit out the configuration, put it in your Arduino for free. Doesn't have to go through me at all. But if you want the experience, if you don't even want to buy an Arduino and use the IDE, if you just want to buy it on Amazon and plug it in and have it work, then um, China won't copy that as easily. And yeah, that's... Yeah, that's interesting. And it's it's interesting. It's like, I agree with you 100% on open sourcing your software. I think that's a great a great thing to do. And I think that the hardware that you're developing if it's slick it will sell but China will copy it. Mm-hmm. But they'll probably develop their own software. Yeah, I don't know, man. That's a tricky question. That's a, that's a tricky place to be. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the control LED controllers that we see from China are not very impressive in the software. Oh, it's all bullshit, man. Here are 200 patterns that you can rotate through one by one, and they are slightly different from each other, and they all kind of suck. Okay, so here's the the, the difference. China China makes amazing hardware, and they're, they're amazing at making and copying hardware. But their software, they've always turned to the West for design, right? Like that, that like most of my, my artist friends, many of my artist friends spend a lot of their time in, in Asia, right? Like creating programming for Chinese, like architectural features. And it's because they turn to the West for design. And that, that is like one thing that, but that's starting to change, man. There's a whole scene of, of native Asian born light artists that are coming up. I'm I'm on their lists. Like I want it, you know. Yeah, it's like th- there is a there is a a like a a native Asian art scene, light art scene that's that's coming up, which is really cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping that when the, this world is open to non-programmers, I'm hoping that we'll see a a huge rise and influx of LED artists that can suddenly do what they couldn't do previously. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, that a really easy to use tool would enable sculpture artists, to, for example, to to create their own patterns. I think that there will always be a role for um, the quote unquote professional light artists, yeah. right? Because I think that anybody who focuses a hundred percent of their time thinking and and breathing uh, light art and and the nuance of light art will will always have a role. Right. But I think that opening the world up, just like DSLR, uh, you know, camera phones opened up photography to to the layman. Mm-hmm. Right. There will be people who create epic light art who have no, you know, like professional experience. But I think that there will always be a role for professional artists who focus on the light, the light arts. Agreed. Um, simply because like large scale light art is 
fucking technically complicated, man. It's electrically complicated. And it's, you know, if you're going to create a large scale art piece, like you're going to like just the power in problems, right? 90% of led problems come down to power, right? Like correct, correct grounding, right? Like voltage drop. Like these, these are issues that don't, these are physics. This is physics, you know? And it's like, it, it it's experience that allow you to conquer those those challenges um proper weatherproofing you know all this shit you know it's like being a carpenter <laughs> yeah 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 definitely uh a lot of trial and error on those things i don't know if you've seen the um uh the ferris wheel in in uh, golden gate park um not in golden gate park no it's a giant installation it'll be there for a few more months um as any giant installation Ferris wheel like thing, it has a lot of LEDs on it, and yeah. frankly, they are a disaster. Uh, I've always wanted to do a Ferris wheel, <laughs> right? It's definitely a very iconic lit thing. Yeah, it's running at a solid like five frames per second, maybe ten uh, frames per second, and oh God. and honestly, a lot of people don't notice that. Uh, I went there with my date, and she was like, "Yeah, I can't. I, I don't know what you're talking oh about." Oh my God. Yeah, um, and and it, it hurts me, though. but yeah, and a lot uh, of buildings so, in China are like that too. Yeah, they are. They <laughs> definitely are, and that's that's that it's easy to splooge LEDs all over everything. It's hard to make them look good. So, what's that? You know that skyscraper in San Francisco, and it's like it's this beautiful skyline of San Francisco, and then you've got this one building that has like chunky patterns of rgb that just like cycle around it like this te- like it's like they installed leds and the controllers and then they ran a <laughs> test pattern and they were like yeah good enough do you know what i'm talking about i'm I gonna do. go knock on that fucking door I dude see and I'm just gonna be I, like, on the bay bridge driving towards the city yeah no, yeah totally i know exactly what you mean it is I, a- and it's like i just want to go bang on the door and be like <laughs> t- give me your facilities manager i am going to have yeah. a talk yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was in. It's know, things like that. The city Hall actually did a good job. They only have the theater, the par lights. It's not in, uh, the, individually addressable or anything like that. But but whoever did the lighting design there is actually uh, feels competent. It's yeah. nice and well, diffuse and colors and high frame rate and good for them. Yeah, yeah. smooth, smooth fades, no hot spots. Yeah. Um, nice nice coordination of color and motion like these are fundamental artistic principles right it's like i maintain that like the basis of most visual art is it's like principles of photography right and cinematography it's like these same principles can be conveyed to to almost all other visual arts another visual medium yeah, but the, the the principle, the core principles are are fundamentally the same, and it's it's like, you know, spacing and and color coordination and and the smooth flow of motion through a frame or or through your field of view or across your canvas, you know. Um, this is like these are the you know like the better artists, man. Like when you're when you're just starting out, you know, it's all about flash and trash all about flash and trash right <laughs> i started out as a vj right and like the beginning of my career was just like yeah. hammering on the fucking faders yeah and then like as you get older as you get more experienced it yeah. becomes more more slower subtle. it's about the subtlety yeah. and the nuance right and that's how that you LFO mature is just between like the 60 percent and the 70 percent of that purple it's not 
Yeah. Yeah, man. And that's like how you, when you meet somebody who's reached that level of maturity in their art form, you're like, wow, this is cool. And you can appreciate that. And it's like, that's what I love, man. I love talking to artists. I do. Because everybody's got their own aesthetic and it's okay. Like people have art that I'm like, well, I don't think that's, I think that's kind of ugly, but I see how you've nurtured that aesthetic to the point where you're at. And it's like, you can appreciate artists when they get to that level of nuance yeah. even if you don't like their aesthetic yep <laughs> you know what i mean agreed yeah. I mean, that, that feeling what, what i described before of they get it um i don't always like um yeah it's not something i would want in my room or in my house right but you see it and you're like i get it you you know what yeah. you're doing you are yeah yeah, yeah you've gone through the yeah you've walked the path and and you know what you're doing yeah, man. And it's funny. It's like, it's been such an interesting journey. Like, it, I'll tell you, starting a business was a really hard thing for becoming a good business owner and a good person while owning a business that focused on light art was a long journey for me. You know, like I started out and I fucked it up hard, man. Like not crazy but it was like i was focused on the wrong things and i like it took me a while it took me like a couple years to really like find a balance between like okay i'm trying to grow this business and i'm trying to like express my personality as an artist and i'm trying to combine those two things and i'm trying to like yeah, yeah it's just it's 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 a it's a journey it really is a journey yeah well you know what they say you get it right the third time yeah yeah you do man you definitely do definitely do yeah i've definitely Uh, had my fair share of lessons learned and battle scars for sure well i'm stoked man i'm really stoked to see what you do i'm stoked to see the the these environments that you're creating i'm really excited to to get to play with the the software platform that you're developing like that's really exciting for me like yeah it's it's cool to see new novel tools because it opens up new doors yeah i'm excited to share it and despite it's very raw uh raw form right now i think that uh, i think i'll be able to convey to you the 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 general concept and, and what i'm trying to achieve here Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I'll, I'll, yeah, man. It's <laughs> I'd be happy to help, like just bounce ideas and yeah. Cool. Well, we're almost at two hours. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go to bed. <laughs> Thank you so much. If this didn't, if this didn't fucking record, dude, I would be so pissed. <laughs> I can still see the the waveform for both of us on the. Can you? Okay, good. Yeah. All right, good. <laughs> All right, brother. Cool. Well, let's hang out when you. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, let's. Yeah, let's hang out. Absolutely. We should hang out in person. Yeah. All right, brother. Talk soon. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.